Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. In her mid-twenties, Raina Cohen started a friendship that was unlike any she'd experienced before. She felt like she was falling in love again, but in this friendship, she didn't experience the same physical attraction that she felt toward her husband. She was so close to her new friend that she struggled to describe the relationship to other people. She started doing some research, and that became the basis for her new book, The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about friendship and the assumptions that we make about it. Later in the show, we'll hear about intergenerational friendships and hear from students at Quinnipiac University who live with older adults in an assisted living facility. But first, Raina Cohen. She's author of The Other Significant Others. She's also a producer and editor at NPR. Raina, welcome to Disrupted. So glad to talk to you about the book. So before we talk about the book, I'm curious about how you came to this particular topic and approach to the book. So what is it about friendship that made you say, I actually want to write about it? You know, I'm writing about a really specific kind of friendship in this book, and that also came from a personal place. So these friendships are close enough to be life partnerships. Like these are people who might be buying homes together, maybe raising kids together, growing old together. And I started thinking about that kind of friendship and writing about it because I fell into a friendship that was sort of closer than anything I'd known before, where the two of us would see each other four or five times a week. You know, we became part of each other's daily routines in a way that, you know, it's kind of normal for partners to be. Um, We were plus ones to each other's office parties. We hosted our own parties. Um, I just felt extraordinarily known by her and and just like always wanted to see her and had this, this um, you know, smitten feeling about my friend. And it felt like it surpassed what even a best friend is. So, you know, as I was trying to understand, like, what is this relationship? Why, if it is so important, isn't there even a term for it? Like, and is it just us here? Like, I'm pretty sure it's not just us. I'm pretty sure there are other people who have experienced this. And I wanted to find other people and try to understand what we could learn from them because they were approaching friendship um, and and they're really their social lives writ large quite differently than how we're told we're supposed to. What I think is so important in this book and the way that you just talked about that is that friendship isn't something that most people intentionally think about in terms of what do we call this? How do we define this? What are the boundaries for it? And yet friendship seems to be a constant thread throughout various periods of our lives, even if what that means may change over time. Why then the argument that we need to reimagine friendship, given this sort of connection we have, even if we don't recognize it? Well, I think despite friendship being a constant, it's it's seen as, I think, peripheral and, and a, 
a bonus. You know, it, it's not the thing that you build your life around. I mean, I can think about so many people who have made decisions to move to other states, to other coasts and countries uh, for jobs or for uh, for spouses, uh, you know, or partners. And, you know, they might be sad that they're leaving their friends behind, but it's like, well, you wouldn't make such a significant life decision about friends. You'll just make new ones, right? Like you'll find a new community. And I am not saying that people should, you know, not make big life decisions on the basis of things like careers and spouses and, you know, relatives, um, but that I think friends friends can be in the mix too. Um, they can be the, the thing that that makes our life feel totally full. And I'm sure lots of people have had experiences where they were, you know, head over heels for a romantic partner and maybe neglected their friendships a little bit. And then the romantic partnership didn't work out. And like, who was there at the end of the day? So, um, you know, I think it's important for us to recognize that friendships actually are uh, a constant and to treat them with the kind of um, the level of attention and respect that we do, other relationships that we also assume to be these enduring features of our lives. That importance of nurturing friendships, of investing into them the way that we would a romantic relationship isn't something that we hear about, right? So what you just said was there's, there's this built-in assumption that you can move away and the friendship will just kind of endure, or maybe it won't, and that's okay, because this is the priority that we should make. And I think about where I am in my own life, Raina, where over the last few weeks, really seeing the importance of nurturing a friendship. You know, my family has celebrated life and great achievements with friends over the last few weeks, and also had to bury a very good friend. And that kind of investment and commitment, we don't hear about in society. Why do you think that we should sort of change that thinking of, yes, we pour into our romantic relationships, but when we think about all the pieces of our lives and our identity that are worthy, the friendship can be a glue as well. Uh, you know, I think I, that... A romantic relationship can be beautiful. One relationship can be beautiful, but for most of us, that's just not enough. And uh, they're, you know, the the best memories in our lives or the most um, tender moments don't always just feature, you know, one main character in it. There, there are other people. Um, so I, I think one one part of it is just that we we need more than one person. And that is assuming that people have a romantic partner in the first place or that they have a romantic partnership that endures for their entire adulthood. Uh, you know, the way that marriage statistics are, you know, are pointing to, that's just not the case for people. I mean, we had like a record high number of people uh, in the U.S. who have never married, you know, before age 40. And the point at which people are getting married is later, which means if they are getting married at all, that that's a big chunk of adulthood that they might not have a spouse for. And then particularly in heterosexual relationships, women are extremely likely to survive their spouses if a, you know, the the relationship doesn't end in separation or divorce, which is also common. So, you know, this having this kind of one relationship as a one size fits all model really doesn't fit every single person. And it also doesn't fit every sing single phase of our lives. And uh, we, you know, want to maybe nurture other kinds of significant others in the 
for the people and parts of our life where there isn't a romantic partner. And even if there is, you know, if we're listening to relationship experts, they have been telling us like, do not put all the pressure on one person in a romantic relationship because it's going to weaken it. You mentioned gender. And I'm curious about how gender shapes this idea that if you look at pop culture, the idea is that men are supposed to have strong friendships, right? We all know that phrase, the very crude phrase, bros before, pejorative term. If you look at TV, reality TV, women seem like they can never get along. And it's always the moment where women are just going to argue. How do things like gender and in some ways it's also like a heteronormative approach to this. How does gender play out in how we imagine and reimagine friendship? Well, it's, you know, those those particular examples are interesting because I think in some ways they push against, you know, the, what, what the realities are of a lot of um, people's lives. So I think women are much more likely to have close friendships. And there are plenty of statistics to indicate that men are much more likely to go to their spouse as the first person they want to talk to than they would to their male friend. Um, men are far less likely to tell their friends that they love them uh, than than women are. Uh, so, you know, in, in practice, I, I think what ends up happening for men is that they only expect emotional intimacy to come with a female partner. And in fact, I've seen this in the people that I've talked to for the book, like one um, straight man who I interviewed named uh, Nick, he actually got to a point where he was wondering if he was gay because he felt emotional intimacy in his male friendship and like missed his friend, wanted to hug him and thought like, well, maybe that meant that he had like sexual attraction to him, which like is fine if that was the case, but he, that wasn't the case. He just like had never been made to, you know, experience that kind of closeness with a male friend. Um, and even, you know, preceding all this, he grew up in an atmosphere like where, his dad wouldn't even sit too close to him on the couch. He was not supposed to touch other men. And I don't think that that is an unusual experience. And it's something that really inhibits men from becoming close. And also in these heterosexual relationships ends up putting a lot of pressure on the woman because she ends up having to bear the kind of uh, full emotional load of the romantic partner. And one phrase that I love that um, a writer came up with was uh, this is emotional gold digging uh, that that men are kind of requiring women to take on the emotional work that they won't do for each other. Share with our listeners some of the other things that you heard as you were talking to people for this book. Well, I mean, I've, I heard both the ways that these really deep friendships were incredibly fulfilling for them. And on the flip side, the ways that other people could not seem to compute <laughs> what these friendships were. So they are kind of dealing with this duality of feeling like they have something extraordinarily special and something that is also judged. Uh, so, you know, with um, the this the example I gave with, with Nick and his friend Art, uh, they met studying to be youth pastors in conservative Christian denominations. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to give a kind of give away too much, but they ended up facing professional consequences because of the friendship, um, because people in their community could not believe that it was not a sexual relationship. Um, you know, other kinds of things I, I've, I've heard from people are, are um, the stories of how they support each other um, that I think illustrates that there is not really any 
kind of limit to what a friend can do in another person's life. Like I, you know, I talked to these two women in their 80s who have been best friends for 50 years and they own a home together, which they bought in retirement. Um, and they have been in and out of the hospital taking care of each other. Um, the child of one of theirs um, died very young and the friend was the person mourning with her and going to her, you know, every evening and having dinner with her, making sure she was taken care of. Um, you know, I write about a friend who just sent me a follow-up email this week about how she remains devastated after her friend's death. It's been six years and she still feels like she lost a soulmate and that that, you know, one of the reasons she emailed me was because she felt like I was one of the few people who would understand um, what that loss was like. So, you know, it's um, the depth of these connections come through both in the the kind of most beautiful moments of people feeling understood and also, you know, when things are scary or when there's loss involved and when they feel like the world isn't getting them, whether it's not being allowed into the hospital because they're not relatives or people not getting why the loss is so devastating or people assuming that there's a sexual relationship. Um, you know, these these types of friendships are really liable to be misunderstood. I love the multi-generational, cross-generational aspect of your book, because it allows us to see that as we grow and change, our sense of relationship changes, and in some ways, our need for different aspects of a relationship change. I remember being little watching the Golden Girls, right? And thinking, this is so cool. This group of women came together, they support each other, and they show up for one another in these profound and mundane ways. And as I get older, I think about that. Like, what does it mean for show up to show up for someone when there's a health challenge? Or there is this simple joy that you want to go to and share it without having to explain it. And your book also talks about how our notions of friendship have changed over time. In your research, you talk about David and Jonathan in the Hebrew Bible and how that sort of sets a foundation for how people think about it. What stands out to you when you think about how that notion of friendship and that connection has changed over time? I think what's really striking is how friendship has been much more significant and publicly recognized and involved emotional depth that are now things that we pretty much exclusively associate with romantic relationships. Uh, you know, so David and Jonathan in the Hebrew Bible, they had a covenant to, you know, mark their commitment as friends. Um, you know, I write about this practice of what is called sworn brotherhood. Um, and they're the kind of roots of that go back to like the fourth through sixth centuries where you would see monks pair off and have a spiritual union with one another and be expected to take care of each other. And in these uh, practices of sworn brotherhood, men would enter into a church and put their hands on the gospels, one on top of the other, and a priest would say a blessing over them. And they would likely be surrounded by friends and family. And that blessing would be turning them into brothers in, you know, the church's um, eyes uh, and, you know, bounding them for life or potentially even death. Some of these sworn brothers were buried together. Um, you know, that's not how we think about friendship now. And if you, you know, look at the kinds of letters between same-sex friends that people exchanged in the 1700s, 1800s, up until really the turn of the 20th century, 
there is a level of effusion that just reads to people today, like love letters, um, and and that there's this expectation that well, clearly people had you know some some sexual desire, and and maybe some of them did. Um, not discounting that, it's it's sort of hard to know with the different cultural categories. But you know, as one historian. I think put it really nicely, like people in the past did not believe that in order to love someone, you also had to lust after them. So when I look back on this history, I see these different notions of how friendship was not so different um, from kinship or a spousal relationship, um, and that it could be just as emotionally intense and publicly recognized um, as, you know, the familial and spousal relationships that we, we now think of as so separate from friendship. That was Raina Cohen, author of The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Coming up, Raina shares that even she has to question the assumptions that she makes around relationships. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're re-examining the way that we look at friendships. Later in the show, we'll talk about having friends of different ages. But now, more from our conversation with Raina Cohen. She's author of The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Ask Raina about the legal power that marriage can hold and how that shapes our friendships. Well, one thing that I discovered while working on this um, was that there's only really one legal structure for adults who want to exchange rights and benefits, at least in most U.S. states, and that's marriage. I mean, basically, there is a marriage monopoly. There, are, you know, if you have another kind of relationship that is not one that has sort of these sexual and and romantic components, let's say you're two siblings who you know take care of each other through and through. I've certainly heard stories like that, or these sorts of friends. You're kind of fresh out of luck. I mean. I do, you know, write about experiences of, of um, particularly some older friends who go to lawyers and, you know, write up medical, legal, medical and legal power of attorney rights for the other, um, put them in their will and name them as the executive of their state and so on. Um, but those are one expensive processes that a lot of people would not think to do. And the other is that you can get rights on paper, but that does not get you 
this other part that marriage offers, which is a status, a widely recognized status. So, you know, going back to those women in their 80s who I mentioned, the two of them, you know, have medical and legal power of attorney rights to each other. One of them ended up um, being put in an, an ambulance to go to the hospital a few years ago. And the friend was not able to get into the hospital um, initially. She was asked, you know, are you a relative? And and um, this woman said no. You know, a half hour later, as the woman is waiting in her car in, on a February day in the Midwest, um, then this, you know, she she goes back and this question comes up, like, who's who has medical power of attorney rights to this, uh, you know, to this woman? And um, it was the friend. So she was able to go in. So the legal right kind of like helped her in the end. But it didn't it, it she didn't have a status that made that kind of connection legible. So, I, you know, I think the um, the need here is to have more kinds of legal structures that make it clear that there are other ways to care for a person. And those can be things like domestic partnerships. Um, there is a law in Colorado that I suggest using as a template um, called the Designated Beneficiary Agreement, um, you know, based on what other legal scholars have pointed to, um, or just having like a, you know, a designated decision maker, like in the way that essentially like a legal form of an emergency contact, like the, the go-to person if something goes wrong. Um, and this feels especially important at a time where so many people are not married and you end up having these sort of complicated next of kin situations. And, you know, one of the people in the book who I talked to who was most passionate about this um, is someone who's done a lot of LGBTQ activism and took care of people during the AIDS crisis and saw that because these people, you know, did not have legal rights to their chosen family, whether that be their partner or their friends, they, you know, those people couldn't be with them and couldn't make decisions for them um, at the end of life and in these really, you know, tense moments. So, you know, there are all sorts of ways that people's closest relationships get left out in the law. And it is extraordinarily, it is extraordinarily undignifying. And, you know, it really does not have to be this way. And it adds a layer of stress and, and back to that concept of pressure that could be avoided if we just respected people's wishes, their intentions, and their choices. I'm curious, Raina, about any resistance that you've received to the themes of this book. My One of my very best friends in college was a man. And I remember that our friends who you know weren't our, our mutual friends seemed incredulous that you could just be friends with a person without any interest or attraction. And even to the people we were dating, it was, you know, no, this is my friend. They are valuable to me. There are boundaries here that we all respect, but people still can't get over that concept that a friend can just be a friend, whatever that means. Have you encountered any resistance or people who are like, ah, that sounds good, but I don't really believe that that can happen. Well, I, I think I see the resistance channeled in the stories of the people that I write about or in the kinds of questions that people might ask. Um, and, you know, one thing is I think we have this paucity of vocabulary for talking about connection and attraction. And, you know, one community I've learned a ton from is the asexual community. So people who don't experience sexual attraction and they have, you know, have come up with these much more granular ways of talking about the ways that we feel drawn to each other. So maybe you and your friend don't have a romantic romantic or sexual attraction, but there is there is some kind of intellectual attraction or aesthetic attraction. There are other there are other kinds of pulls that we can feel to each other. I mean, that was one of the things that that struck me 
you know, pretty much immediately with the friend who inspired me to write the book where I felt infatuation with her, but I didn't feel sexual attraction. And I had not been told that those sorts of things are are, are separable. Um, so, you know, I do think that it's it kind of scrambles these really fixed categories that people have a hard time wrapping their mind around. Like, you know, um, somebody who kind of plays this this representative role in the book of someone who's skeptical is the mother of um, these two uh, men who are now in their 30s who I write about, uh, who are both straight men. And the mother just sort of like couldn't understand how it, their partnership could exist as friends and not be romantic. And like she couldn't wrap her mind around it, basically said just that. And that she wanted her, you know, she was not coming from a place of real judgment, but just that like she wanted her kid to be happy and that she had one understanding of what happiness meant, which was having a romantic partnership. Um, and it took sort of seeing her son's longtime friendship um, with with his friend to realize like, that she had just, you know, maybe had a narrow idea of what a good life looked like. And it, in fact, it made her reflect on her own life and her own, you know, sense of like, well, I just got to follow the next step that's put in front of me. So, um, you know, there is, I think, initial resistance, but I'm really hopeful that if people actually get to sit down with these stories and, and think through some of the questions that these friends raise, like, why do we think that you know, the the presence of romance is so important to to partnership. And could it just be that commitment matters, as an example, um, that maybe some of that resistance lets up and that even some opportunity for reflection and thinking about, like, could you reimagine your own sense of what a good life looks like? Like, that can come through. Let's talk about that reflection as we come to the close of our conversation this is a book that is also a challenge for readers to reflect on their own thoughts, their own relationships and connections, to reflect on the ways that they allow themselves to feel joy and love and connection. And so I'm curious, Raina, what writing this book taught you about yourself or what was the reflection that you take away from doing this work? Man, I mean, I learned so much about kind of my personal relationships, um, both, you know, the ones that I write about. Um, I, I'm married, so I have, you know, a romantic relationship. And it's really foregrounded for me the importance of prioritizing not just the, the marriage, but other relationships, which, you know, I was inclined to do anyway. But I think um, I realized at different moments and um, because of the book, how ingrained these ideas are, even for someone who's writing a book about friendship. So to give an example of this, um, my husband and I had had a conversation with a couple of our friends about potentially living with them, which was something that like both of us, you know, had been interested in theory in this kind of setup for a while. Uh, but when it came to the the actual like details of it, I became worried that you know, we'd end up spending more on rent and that my husband and I would have to kind of prolong our plan to buy a home together and, you know, pay and have enough for a down payment. And he asked me like, well, like, do we care about buying a home? Like, how important is that? Like, you know, that might, that might be a consequence, but how important is it? And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I, I've like fallen into this trap <laughs> that like, this was just sort of the default next step basically. And I, of course, like the thing that I value is community. The thing that I value is the opportunity to live with these friends who, you know, are these like dear, wonderful people um, in our lives. And 
through the book and through that conversation, which was very kind of related, I, I realized that that even as someone who's thought about this a lot, I have my own kind of deprogramming to do. And um, that there it's important for me to be asking myself questions around, you know, why am I making the decisions um, that I'm making? Is it because I'm this is this is a thing that I think is actually going to be fulfilling? Um, or am I, you know, or am I just kind of sliding into autopilot and um, paying attention to what everybody else is saying is going to make for a successful life? Um, and, you know, I think uh, talking to these people who have put such intention into their friendships has made me appreciate, like, having hard conversations um, that there are, you know, setting aside time for friends and not expecting things to just sort of unfold and, you know, work naturally that these relationships, um, platonic relationships demand just as much care and forethought as romantic relationships. I'm so glad that you wrote this book. I'm glad that this is a book that will encourage people to reflect and to also extend a sense of grace to themselves that we're all learning and unlearning and unpacking in different ways. But the hope is that it will bring us to that place of reflection and connection. Raina Cohen is producer and editor for NPR. She's author of The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Thank you, Raina. Thanks for the wonderful questions. Coming up, we'll talk about making friends with people from different generations. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, nothing is going. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about friendship, from the role friends play in our lives to who our friends actually are. Many of you know that I work at Quinnipiac University, and we host a program that fosters intergenerational friendships. It does so by placing students in housing at an assisted living facility. Elise Majorano is one of those students. We're living at Masonicare Ashley Village right now, um, and there's this really cool program where we do activity planning here, and we do activities such as chair dancing, family feud, uh, baking, um, and they can let us live here, and we live with the residents, and we're like neighbors, and it's, it's really cool. Our friend Anne-Marie Allen also decided to participate in the program. Even just spending five minutes with somebody going into their room um, and just having a little conversation, hearing life stories has been so amazing because I've lived in so many different places and now I can check like retirement home off the list. Even if you just take like a second to smile at somebody in the hallway, I, I know for a fact that it brightens their day as it does mine because we will have like maybe, maybe a rough day at school or a hard day at work and we'll come back here and it just turns into a hundred like hugs and hi, how are you? What's going on? Why are you feeling this way? And because this population cares so much about us, I really think we need to input more into caring about this, this community because they really do matter so much to us. Ben Page is one of the older adults living in the community. It's uh, been a, an exchange that it really brings in a, a dimension that here has been missing, at least for us. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, on one occasion, having a, cha a chance, very quick, but a chance to dance with a young woman, that's the first time I've had in years.
A number of studies indicate that intergenerational friendships can make our lives richer. In a 2019 survey from AARP, more than 90% of people who had an older or younger friend said that the friendship brought unique benefits to their lives. For more on intergenerational friendships, we're joined now by Eunice Lynn Nichols. Eunice is co-CEO of CoGenerate. It's an organization that brings together people from different generations to solve problems. Eunice, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Before we talk about this amazing nonprofit that you are co-leading, I'm curious how the idea of intergenerational friendships or intergenerational relationships and connections became a part of your life's work. So what is it about your experience, your background that led you to say, this is where I want to direct my energy? Mm, What a great question. Uh, One thing I love about focusing on intergenerational relationships is that it's something most of us have a personal connection to either from a powerful experience in our life or from the lack of connection. Um, I'm obsessed with connecting across generations uh, to create a new kind of extended family, I think in large part because of my own experience as an immigrant, of uh, a child of immigrants from Taiwan. Um, like many immigrant families, my parents brought my grandparents over from Taiwan once they got settled in the Midwest where I was born. And so I always had this, um, this natural set of older and younger people in my family life, eventually aunties and uncles in the community from our uh, immigrant community who are part of my life too. Uh, they might not have been related to me, but they were very much embedded. And I think those relationships where both I was um, helping my grandparents become more acculturated to uh, this new life, um, they were helping to keep me grounded in the culture they'd come from, a culture that is so important to me. And I should say increasingly important to me in my adult life now. I don't think I even knew all of those benefits back then, Um, but it laid that foundation for me when I got out into the uh, adult world myself. I think I noticed the lack of, uh, of natural connection points for me once I was outside my family unit to have it was something that I longed for and was so fortunate to find both in my workplace uh, and in the work that I ended up doing. I appreciate you for naming that because it really wasn't until I went away to college that I realized that the experience I had of growing up in a multi-generational household wasn't the experience that everyone else had. It just was, I took it for granted because everyone around me was that extended village and I didn't appreciate until I got older just what that means. And you talked about these sort of natural connections of you being born into a family and environment where this was the case. And many people don't have that. Why do you think that this isn't something that happens more naturally or more broadly and organically for people? Is it something about American culture, American society, or is it just not something that we focus on as much, these multi-generational, intergenerational connections? Well, one, there are actually two interesting trends happening right now in our country that I think get to this question you're asking. Um, One is that we actually live in the most age diverse time in human history with often five generations in the workplace. Uh, And a relatively new report from the Stanford Center on Longevity shows that there's unprecedented age diversity with almost equal numbers of people of every age from birth to 70 and beyond. 
So you would think that would mean that we would be seeing intergenerational relationships popping up everywhere. Um, but the second trend is that at the same time that we're living in the most age diverse society, we're actually also living in the most deeply age segregated nation we've ever had with shockingly few opportunities for generations to connect in daily life, uh, much less to combine their, their talents and their assets for, for the good of the world. Um, so much like you, uh, it wasn't until I left for college and then entered into my, my early adult working life that I found myself in such an age segregated space, or maybe there were older adults um, at the time I was younger, older adults in my space, but there weren't a lot of uh, ways of interacting in meaningful intera um, meaningful relationships. So I think that the age segregation of our structures in society is a big part of why we don't see it more often. Even for me, um, I've dedicated more than 20 years of my life to bringing generations together and outside of the work that I do in my own personal life, when I look at my neighborhood structures, um, even in faith institutions, one of the few places where there might still be programs for olders and youngers, usually those programs are very separate. They don't bring older and youngers together to build intentional relationships. Um, schools, workplaces, community centers, everywhere you look, even if you see an older and younger people there, they are very rarely intentionally being brought together. I worry sometimes about the decline of civic institutions. You mentioned faith institutions, for example, all of the spaces that would create opportunities for us to come together. Americans seem to be withdrawing from those spaces or not engaging them in the same ways. You know, Robert Putnam wrote about this years ago, but I really think post COVID in this hyper technology obsessed society, we are kind of getting away from those personal connections and relationships in the same way. How then does your organization say, this is where we are in American history, this great opportunity given the age diversity, how do we overcome the barriers to bring people together? How does CoGenerate help facilitate those connections? Yeah, well, our nonprofit is, we're a small national nonprofit, but we punch way above our weight, or at least we try to. Um, and we, we do that by focusing on a few areas. One, we want to open people's imagination to the possibility and power that gets unleashed when we work together across differences to make the world a better place. Um, and part of that is uh, opening up people's imagination to the possibilities, then creates a question. Great. I would love to actually be in relationship with or to do something meaningful with somebody of another generation. How do I do it? Because of course they look around and don't find opportunities. So we invest a lot in uh, social innovators that are trying to make a difference and create new structures or reinvent ways of doing things to bring older and younger together. Um, and then we really invest in those leaders to build a sense of community for them so they can stay the course um, and, and help their work to expand. So much of this, what we call co-generational work, not just one directional uh, interactions, but where the older and youngers are mutually seen, heard, and their assets are brought to the table. Um, requires just us looking and seeing where the possibilities are. Um, we are present with one another. We are just blind to it. So if you see somebody older or younger in your neighborhood, in your faith institution, the work environment is a place where actually most of us are going to interact with people of other generations, primarily in the workplace. We have five generations in the workplace right now. How might we lean in there um, instead of staying with what's comfortable and sticking with 
people of our own generation. Um, looking for those small opportunities where we might spark a conversation is important. Um, and I'll say one other thing, the Surgeon General um, came out last year with a report on increasing levels of social isolation and loneliness in our country, obviously exacerbated by COVID and other things, but frankly, we were on that path well before. Um, and he calls out the detriments of loneliness and isolation as equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the health detriments. Um, we are longing to be knit back together. And one natural way to do that across many different divides, as you've mentioned, is to do it generationally. It is natural, but we've kind of lost the insight and ability to do it. Eunice, I have always thought about these co-generational, multi-generational experiences, and I'm so glad to hear you say it is not top down, it's not one way, it is how we all benefit. I've often thought about it and how it has helped me in my own life. You know, I, I just got back from a trip where there were 70 year olds and 80 year olds and 90 year olds on this trip with me and just the opportunity to listen to them reflect on their experiences or to ask me about mine. There was this personal sense of connection that is beautiful and encouraging. But what you've just named is that there is actually a public health benefit as well to having greater connections, whether it's breaking through isolation, being able to have another set of eyes on people to check in and see how they are. What are some of those broader communal benefits that you see of building these connections or building these spaces for connection? I think that building intentional relationships across generations can help us individually and as a country develop a muscle that we've some somewhat lost for bridging intractable divides. Uh, we are, I think we feel, uh, each of us feels like this might be one of the most polarizing times in our country's history. Um, when I'm in conversation with older generations, one, it's a helpful reminder that we have had incredibly contentious times before, um, that there is a longer game and that we can both learn from the past and also sit in this moment relationally. Um, I find when I'm with older generations, sometimes there's a more, uh, Interestingly, while they are closer to the end of their life, there's sometimes a perspective that feels more expansive about time because they've lived it. And so I find that as a young person, sometimes I have the urgency or a desire to step in um, and to do something right away. And it helps to have an older perspective that says, uh, we can sit here in relationship and build this over time. Um, that kind of um, the balance of urgency, go in, innovate with let's listen, sit in relationship, and also look at what's happened is actually, um, I think, some of the magic that can happen. Uh, and I'll say when it comes to polarization and, and divides, there's a lot in the media narratively about generations at war and a lot of finger pointing. We're seeing that right now <laughs> in, in, in a very big way. Um, and while the media may like to spin up stories about a zero-sum game between older and younger generations, and much of that um, is because of the systemic ways that older and younger have been put together uh, to, to fight against each other structurally around money, policies, um, our, our politics, the reality is most of us actually have in our personal lives an older, significantly older or younger person that has been very meaningful to us. I'm thinking about where we are as a country in 2024, that tremendous division and polarization. 
I am frankly concerned about where we will be in the fall of this year as we really get into the heat of what will be a contentious election cycle. We're already seeing that. And when you mention policies, the ways that campaigns and elections tend to blame older generations for the challenges we face today and indict younger generations for not doing more or or not engaging in the same ways. And none of us win with that because we end up fighting against each other and not attacking the the systems or the structures or the decisions and in some ways non-decisions that lead us to this point. Thinking about the work that you do and, and the work that people affiliated with you do and heading into this election cycle, what would you say to people about, you know, holding that idea that we are in this together, we may be affected differently, but we're all affected by what's happening. What advice would you give? Yeah, um, I would say one, I think there's a lot of back and forth around what different generations are, are, are fighting about. And uh, I wonder if we might do better if we focused on what we're fighting for. And when I really pay attention to what's underneath, I actually see some common ground. Um, I think that younger people want a chance to live a good life, to make, to have a viable job that has purpose <laughs> where they can actually afford to live here in this country. Um, these are things that older generations fought for as well. Um, and right now, if we can focus on how we can help each other get the things that we both need, um, finding that common ground of what we both desire can be a bridge. Um, I'll give a couple of concrete examples of places where we love to see these connections happen. Um, younger people, uh, especially around urban college settings, for example, we've discovered are having a hard time actually finding a place to live that is affordable. Um, during the pandemic, we heard of some universities that were opening up parking lots so students could live in their cars as they went to school. Um, that's a, a, a solution to, to students who can't afford it, but it's not, it's not a sustainable one. Meanwhile, there are a lot of older adults that are struggling um, to age in place in homes that they own and they're empty nesters and have a spare bedroom. Many of them live in these urban settings around college campuses. Um, we've seen a few scrappy innovators start to build bridges between these two and say, what if the older adult opened up a spare bedroom at a discounted cost to a young person who could go live with them? We start to see how we might solve um, economic inequity, um, the challenges, the real challenges of aging in this country and, and, and the isolation of living alone. And for a young person who's stepping away from family for, for the first time into uh, the challenge of college living, they get to stay in an extended family dynamic in this house at a severely discounted rate. Um, this is like a solution waiting to happen. Um, when we see issues where an older and younger person are actually experiencing a, a similar challenge, but in different lived ways, and they bring different assets to the table, that feels like a, a place to lean in and say, how might connecting across generations help all boats float? I think about the many of us who are part of this sandwich generation where we are caring for children, young people, and also caring for aging parents and the constant feeling of not doing enough or not being sure, how do we make sure that people have what they need? And that kind of solution of bringing people together 
and doing it in a way that is intentional but doesn't feel forced is groundbreaking. But it also, again, speaks to that idea that we need each other, that we can learn from each other. That kind of lifelong commitment to learning is so critical. I want to ask you this final question, and and that is, as I was listening to you talk about where we are today, there's also a forward vision that I hear from you, Eunice, and that I see in the work of CoGenerate. What do you think the future is of these intergenerational connections and the ways in which you and your team are helping to move us forward? Yeah. The forward moving momentum is that we're at the doorstep really of the most age diverse society we've ever seen. It will either break us because our systems are not ready for it, or it will be the greatest opportunity to heal many of the wounds and to bring our different tremendous assets to the table. Um, A little while ago, we did a survey, CoGenerate did a survey with the University of Chicago National Opinion Research Center um, to ask this question, do older and younger generations actually wanna come together not just for the warm fuzzies, but to actually make society a better place. Um, We didn't know what the response would be in particular during these polarizing times. It turns out nearly all people of all ages believe that co-generation will make life better in America and that they want it. And one of the most interesting findings that came out of that report is that young people particularly want it. Um, They want it almost two times more than older adults. And um, what what that tells me is that we have young people who are not only activated and um, and wanting to create a better world, they want to reach across the generational divide to older adults. Frankly, they need certain things from those of us that are older. Um, that includes our experience, our resources, um, our connections, our network. There's a, a natural reinforcing mechanism here, um, but it turns out older adults also really as they think about their legacy and the world they want to leave for young people desperately want to give that as well and in the process learn that there's a lot for them to learn still Um, i find as i get older when i learn something new from a younger person a younger friend it opens up my possibility of what i still have left in my life Um, the learning horizon that is ahead extends for me my view of what aging can look like. Um, I need younger friends, younger colleagues, younger collaborators in order to keep my my sense of self vibrant. I really appreciate you for reminding us to prioritize spaces for reflection and also connection as we figure out what this life will be together. Eunice Lynn Nichols is co-CEO of CodeGenerate. It's an organization that brings people together across generations to solve problems. Thank you so much. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Here's the friendship 